It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm really looking forward to this episode today because it features a special guest who I have not connected with in many years. We went to Emerson College together and have been chatting on Facebook direct message, and I learned that he was doing some really fascinating work and work that can become uncomfortable at times. So it felt like a really good subject matter for this. And this is something that we haven't, to my recollection, explored except for maybe little ponderings here and there. And this is about tiny homes, specifically in Adam's case, urban tiny homes and tiny houses, which I can't wait to learn more about. It touches upon homelessness. And I think that's an incredibly important subject matter. But before we get into it, Adam, one thing that you and I have in common is that we both went to school to study something that's not directly related to what we're currently doing. So remind me, what were you studying? Were you studying film production like myself or were you studying something else at Emerson? Yeah, I was actually studying print journalism. No, actually, I started at broadcast journalism and then like two years in realized that broadcast journalism is really like a, a poor man's actor. It's there's like, there's like voice lessons as one of the, the classes that you had to take, you know, and it wasn't about news gathering. It wasn't like real journalism. It was news presenting. And so I thought of myself as a very serious, genuine journalist. And so I, I switched to print, but then I took a lot wow. of, I took a lot of production classes with you guys. Cause I always really, I was in love with the documentary form. And so I, I really wanted to go in that route. Memories are starting to come back for me, Adam, hearing you describe what you were doing at Emerson, because I actually do remember now that you were in journalism. And it's interesting because now that I've become a podcaster and, and some of the more the more online digital work that I've done, I wonder, like, maybe I should have studied broadcast journalism or something. And funny enough that my accountant has made me put the word journalist to describe myself for my taxes, because I guess like the government better recognizes that than like saying you're a social media content creator. Maybe that's changed these days. But in the early days of doing my work with Eco Vegan Gal, with my blog and all of the things that I'd been working on since 2008, there was that weird area where it wasn't taken really seriously. And now it is. And one thing I think a lot about, especially in terms of Emerson, is how much that college experience has changed. I'm not 100% sure about Emerson, but I imagine this would be true because I've heard that some schools are now giving their students a a track based on social media, based on becoming like an influencer and, and all of that, which I find super fascinating because when you and I were in school, we didn't even have YouTube and so much had changed, right? Because for me, 
I really want to do video content. And that's what I ended up doing. I mean, we called it film, but I wasn't like attached to whether it was on actual film versus, you know, video, whatever you call it. And it's just so fascinating to see how this has all evolved. So perhaps part of the work that we do now has, is really still very connected to what we were studying in school. I don't know if you would say the same, but since you've had a podcast as well, Adam, I'm sure everything that you studied and how you were developing in college has really impacted that in a lot of ways. Would you say so? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember senior year, somebody did a presentation on what is a block. So we, we graduated in 2005 and it was still like a new term, you know? So yeah, so much has changed. And then we, you know, you and I went to the castle in Europe and we did a semester in Europe together. And if you remember Moses Roth, you might've remembered seeing like me and Moses just like running around with a camera, arguing with each other about shots and stuff. We were, that was at the time that the George Bush went into the Iraq, invaded Iraq in 2003. And so Moses and I were doing like this interview tour of Europe asking people what they thought about the war, what they thought about America. And all that great footage, you know, we interviewed a, a woman in the in the red light district. All that great footage just kind of ended up, you know, just somewhere in my basement or in my closet. But But I did end up like a year after college editing this one moment when we were in Munich. I don't know if you remember when we went to Munich with the group. And we, we caught this interesting moment with this young Iraqi girl holding an Iraqi flag in the square of of Munich. And then our camera presence brought this like this crowd of people and, and it just grew and it became this screaming match. And so I edited all that footage together in like this weird, you know, avant-garde way. And then was like, how can I put this up? And I started Googling around and I found YouTube. This was like in 2005, maybe 2006, but it was just some obscure website back then. So I'd like, yeah, anyway. Is that video still up on YouTube? Yeah, it is. I'd have to dig up the, the title, but it's something like, yeah, a, a flag in Munich or something like that. It's just like wow. a two minute little clip. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, 2005 is when YouTube started. So you were right there at, at cutting edge. And, you know, for me, YouTube became a big part of my career. And I often wondered, like, what if I really started taking it seriously earlier on? Because I didn't get super into YouTube until like, 2009, 2010, which was still fairly early, but the people that had started just a few years earlier had that advantage. Now, granted, I had been posting similar to you, Adam. I had been posting some of my short films on YouTube as early as maybe 2007, 2006, but it felt like such a different way of thinking because going to film school and creating content like you were doing was just like very different back then. But what you're also describing, I think would resonate with people. So sometimes making this different, less YouTube focused content, but more the viewpoint of a college student is taken very seriously these days. So I hope you can dig up that video. We can put that in the show notes for this episode. I'd love to see it. We have uh, a transcript of this episode and links to anything we reference at wellevator.com. So for the listener, you can go to wellevatr.com, find our podcast section. And Adam, if you can find that YouTube link, I will put it in there so that everyone can watch it. 
That's, I mean, I'm getting so much nostalgia just thinking about going to school. Adam was referencing the study abroad program that we did, which it's, it's so funny. Adam, actually, I was um, wishing that I had, I still have my Emerson shirt that I think I got either right before that program or while I was there. I know I had it when I was in Europe because I there's pictures of me wearing that shirt. It's, And I still have it to this day, but it's not with me right now. And I was like, gosh, that would have been the perfect shirt to wear during this episode for the YouTube version of this podcast. But, you know, another time. And just, I'm fascinated by the career evolutions that people take. So I'm curious for you, how did you start getting into tiny homes? And when did you even learn about them? Because I remember hearing them actually through Jason, and Jason's super excited to talk to you about this because he has his personal interest and passion in tiny homes. I'm curious, how, as you've been really in that world, Adam, how long have they been going on? Like, when did you first hear of tiny homes, and what was your journey going from broadcast journalism and studying different forms of journalism to getting involved in this tiny house movement? Yeah, thanks. So I'll try to, I tend to be long in my answers, so I'll try to be concise on this. But so I was in New York during the, the financial crash trying to be a reporter. And it was a romantic reason to go back, back home to the, to the Bay. I mean, kind of my job fell through around 2010. And then I, I kind of went through this period where I was still trying to find work as a reporter, but there wasn't a lot of stuff happening at that point, if you remember. And I just jumped on. I saw in New York a pedicab around Times Square area and had talked to a, a driver. A pedicab is a, a big tricycle with seats in the back where you could carry tourists around. And I was I was cycling like up and down Manhattan uh, to get to work. I lived in Brooklyn and was working in northern Manhattan. So anyway, I, I decided to, to jump on a pedicab. And in San Francisco... I fell in love with it. And it was kind of a temporary thing while I look for a real job. And then seven years later, I'm like in love with pedicabbing. And maybe two or three years into it, about 2012, I'm just kind of YouTubing around, really into environmentalism at this point. Food, I think, you, well, you guys are, seems are, are very inspired by food. Food is also a big motivator for me. And that brought me to thinking about the environment. And on YouTube, I found, I came across tiny homes and tiny homes in relation to permaculture and sustainable systems. And I was also going through this moment of, from the Great Recession, just realizing like, there's nobody behind the wheel in our society. Like it's just, it can fall apart. And so I was thinking seriously about like, how do I provide the basic needs for myself? How do I grow food? And so all that kind of lined up for me around tiny homes. And so I just jumped full in. And and what really jump-started everything was breaking up with my partner that I moved back to the Bay for and getting a one-way ticket to Australia to study permaculture and work on farms. And so I was staying in a lot of weird situations and getting more and more into the idea of tiny homes. And once I ran out of money and decided to come back to the Bay, my housing leap of faith was let's let's figure out how to just jump in a tiny home. And so what I realized was the, the the most direct way to do that rather than, you know, try to build one that might end up taking you like two years, I needed housing, you know, right then and there was to just buy a used RV and, you know, renovate it basically. And you can find them for free or, or very cheap. 
so that's what I did. And that, that sent me down the, the rabbit hole, I guess. Wow. I mean, we actually had one guest on our show who talked about living in an RV and Jason and I both get so excited about this. I can't wait to hear. Jason, I'm sure, has a list of questions. This is just so fascinating to me. I mean, it really lights me up, Adam. And and it's funny how sometimes you don't even realize what lights you up until someone else starts talking about it. So I'm really glad that you're on the show because I think tiny homes are fascinating. Jason, I think you started getting into them Gosh, I would say 2013 or 14, perhaps. Like, you know, it was like as they were growing in popularity, and before the sh- there was like shows on TV slowly showing up, like uh, TV shows coming up with a tiny home concept. And I think you had a book about tiny homes, Jason. Like, you were really considering it. And then it seems like your interest kind of dwindled. So I want to hear, Jason, like where you're at with that. But then the RV scene, Adam, I feel like that has even grown in massive popularity, converting vans, just traveling, people not actually having to pay rent because they're living out of their car, their van, buses. I'm sure you've seen so much of this, Adam. So your perspective on that is really interesting to me. And I'm very drawn to it as well because that freedom that comes along with not having a lot of things, you know, we've talked about minimalism a bit on the show. And I think there's this draw to simply just have freedom as in our country, it theoretically is based on freedom. But of course, not all of us experience that in at least in the way that we really want to. And I think there's something about like, okay, how can I be self-sufficient how can I depend less on others? How can I do whatever I want, whenever I want? How can I have more money? And I think that's incredibly appealing. So Jason, I think this is where you come into the conversation, which is what drew you, Jason, to tiny homes? And how would you like to engage with Adam in this conversation? I'm super curious to hear what you're going to have to say. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. I think it was right around 2013. I remember being in a bookstore in Los Angeles and being drawn to this one. I was in the architecture section and I remember seeing these books on tiny houses. And I'm, I'm thinking like, what is this about? And and again, to Whitney's point, this was prior to any of the, you know, Tiny House Nation or any of the shows on HGTV or Discovery or any of those. And I pick up this tiny house book out of curiosity and and I'm slowly leafing through and I'm looking at the pictures and I'm looking at, you know, some of the architectural designs and and then I get it, it sort of into the philosophy in this book, which at the time I remember, and I still have it on my bookshelf, was espousing sort of this triumvirate of sovereignty, which they kind of defined as like, you know, why would you want to be tied to a 30-year mortgage where you're paying all of this money and you're owing all this money to the bank and that in some ways it's keeping people in a perpetual debt cycle financially. The other uh, side of it was that the independence to pick up and move from community to community and put yourself in different places, that kind of freedom as Whitney was alluding to was something that was exhilarating. And then the other two sides were, you know, the minimalism of reducing your, your material things in life and living simply, but then also giving a level of autonomy to people in, in, you know, sort of desperate social situations, homeless people, people living under the poverty line, giving them a safe, equitable, manageable space to get them off of the streets and empower them to, to do different things. So in this book, I was just digging in going, well, this, 
this is really interesting to me. I'd never read kind of the intersection of these different philosophies in, in quite that way. And I think to me, I, I've always been drawn to, how do I even say this? I'm kind of just always been a rebellious person. And when I see people doing things a certain way in society that work, and I'm like, this doesn't really work for everyone. It works for you because you're benefiting. And so part of the tiny house thing was like, this is different. This is weird. This is new. And so I started buying all these books and watching all the shows and, and looking at different individuals and companies that could build one for me. The reason that I, I don't know that I've lost enthusiasm per se, is more so that the zoning laws in Los Angeles and the way things are set up in LA are not very friendly or conducive to the tiny house movement, as opposed to, and I want to hear more about your community, Adam, in Oakland, or I've toured communities in Portland. I've gone to tiny house communities in Austin, Texas. And the municipalities that, from a legal perspective, are much more beneficial to doing those things, Los Angeles is not one of them. Los Angeles is is pretty shitty when it comes to supporting people in building and maintaining tiny houses. And anyone that does now, it's more of like an ADU. It's on a foundation. And they're like, yeah, we're more liberal now with the zoning for ADUs. But a tiny house on wheels, there's actually not many of them here in LA. And it's been kind of disconcerting. So... That's my long-winded history with with tiny houses. And kind of back to you, Adam, as you're getting into this and you're finding your intersection of sustainability and permaculture and tiny houses, you get back to the Bay Area. What kind of things did you start exploring and what kind of challenges came up for you? And how friendly has the Bay been toward you and your endeavors to you know get this movement going and create what you've created? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing, rounding out, yeah, the tiny house draw. And a lot of what you said I resonated with and were part of what brought me to tiny homes. Yeah, and totally, it's not, it's not a friendly scene here in the Bay. It's very similar, I would say, to LA. And that was one of the big lessons I learned very quickly because, you know, I didn't realize the whole class anti poverty context that, that I was jumping into. When you start living in an RV, you you know it's within all of us. I mean, I had a friend, a pedicabber, who was living in an RV about a year or two before I started doing it, just uh, parked outside of a friend's house and plugged in. And I looked at, I remember like judging him. I remember looking at him like, "You're a loser, man! Like you're you're making the same amount of money as me. Why don't you live like a normal, upstanding person?" You know that anti-poverty framework is in all of us. It's in our culture and it's reflected in our laws. So it is illegal in Oakland, at least, to live in an RV for more than 72 hours. It's illegal to own land and then own the RV and just park it in your on your land without concealing it because it's considered blight. It's be considered an eyesore. So poverty and people that are not making enough to afford million-dollar homes are basically looked at like things to be concealed and, and to be legislated away. And so, so that, that was a rude awakening. And, and so I realized, but it also puts you in this renegade space that you were talking about, Jason, where you're just like, well, screw you. I mean, like, I wasn't really affected by the class stuff, you know, because I went to a school... Whitney, we, our school, we could have bought a McDonald's franchise with the amount of money we, we spent going to school, you know? And like, so I wasn't, but even still, like it does affect you over time when you're, when you're living in a home on wheels and you, especially in the beginning, I had to, 
I didn't have a place to go to the bathroom. So I would have to get on my bike and ride to Target to drop a deuce, you know, but I had to get creative. I had, my dad had some electrical background. So one of the things I was forced to do is figure out how to do sustainable energy. So I set up a solar panel and a little wind turbine and a battery bank and figured that stuff out. And then how do you get water to your site? So I had a pedicab friend help me build a, a big trailer to haul water, like one of those blue barrels, one of those 55-gallon rainwater tanks. I would bike that to my little sister's place. It happened to be nearby. I'd fill it up with water, bike it back, and then figured out how to pump it onto my tank. So it forces you to learn a lot, which was which was what I was after. But the other aspect of it is the the legal side that you referenced it gets into a lot of sticky issues that our society is, is still dealing with and it's still not solved for sure. One one other real quick thing though is is LA supposedly has was one of the first people one of the first places to legalize tiny homes on wheels as an ADU. So it's it's held up as an example, but I don't know what's going on on the ground there, but that's that's something people talk about in the tiny house world. I think this brings up, you know, you talk about this host of challenges and how laws and municipalities and zoning are are and I love that you said anti-poverty there's judgment and legally they're not allowing people to in some places you know have affordable housing options and it brings up the idea too of as I was looking here in LA you know I was I was considering buying a plot of land right you know I don't know quarter of an acre half an acre whatever it is but the cost of just land here is so expensive that you know after buying the plot and putting a tiny house up or building one or inviting my friends to kind of live in a community you know one needs to have quite a sizable reserve of cash to even pull that off so one of the things that that I've hesitated to Adam to your point here is is not just in the past at least a few years ago the the rigid zoning restrictions but the prohibitive cost of access. And some friends kind of have done it in a system like in Ojai or Topanga here. There's a, a few people I know that have tiny houses that because they didn't have the budget to buy the land, they would find through the grapevine maybe someone who did have the land and then they would rent and pay them, you know, three, four, four hundred dollars a month to park their tiny house in the back of their property. So I know some people that have done that, but I think this brings up classism and this brings up the lack of entry to people that don't have a ton of wealth and don't have a ton of cash reserves to buy land and put these tiny houses. Are there any other systems you've seen other than, you know, approaching a private landowner and saying, hey, could I pay you, you know, whatever, $300 a month to park my tiny house there? I guess, how do we make this more accessible and affordable to people that, you know, don't have a ton of money to do this? Yeah, that's the big question. And I think I think it sounds like you've we've toured some of the same places. Did you go to Community First Village in Austin? I did. And Opportunity Village in Portland. I did. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So both of those are great examples, but they're they're nonprofits, and the context is people who have been chronically homeless, and it's a uh, the city is usually in in most cases giving land away, and then there's a lot of donated money to provide this this quote unquote charity and you know that's that's one model but there's there's a lot of people that don't consider themselves homeless they just want to do affordable housing on their own terms and so the main way that they do it is like you reference is is finding a an undercover backyard lease situation and then what my community has done and a couple other places do is like that but but just more of like when young people 
at least a big brownstone house or a big Victorian house and divvy up the rooms. And like in college, I was, you know, living in a basically like a hallway, you know, (laughs) between two rooms, but it was like, you know, five people cram into like a three bedroom. What we did is we, we just leased a big lot and we divvied up the costs that way. And we just rolled our homes in. So the legality is not, not there, but the logistics are there. It pencils out very well when you have fixed costs of just your your land costs, your trash service, your internet, your water. In most cases we're doing porta potty because porta potty service because there's no sewer line connected. When you when you split those fixed costs across five people, eight people, it gets affordable compared to if it's just one one person. Let's talk about what is what does affordable mean? Because it's all relative, right? I mean affordable in a place like Los Angeles, where Whitney and I live. Whitney has also lived in the Bay. I actually used to live in the Bay years ago. You know, the, we live in two of the most expensive metropolitan areas in the world. So, when you say affordable, Adam, what's an idea of? And I also want to talk about the cost of of actually building a tiny house because that can vary widely. You know, I, I've looked at individual builders and also companies that do it. And man, is that a huge range of expense? But before we get into the actual building of it and how how you learn those skills and got into it. When you say affordable, what does that mean per month? Like what's a monthly nut to operate and maintain your space in the tiny house community you have? What does that look like? What's your monthly outlay? Yeah, totally. So I reference being a pedicabber because that's, I think it's a service level job. We and the community that I lived in in the beginning was really primarily made up of pedicab drivers and and people that that worked on on that level of the economy. So, for context, we we would make roughly twenty five to thirty thousand dollars a year in cash, kind of like a waiter type salary. And so, it wasn't really sustainable to pay more than I don't know six or seven hundred dollars a month for your rent, and that was not really possible, it seemed like back in 2014 when I got into this. Um, it was a little bit before that, but it, you know, it, it was getting harder and harder. So our first iteration was about 300, roughly three to four hundred dollars a month that each person had to pay. And now the community is at six hundred dollars a month for a space. And in an RV park, you can't find anything. Well in the urban core around the Bay Area proper, it's like 12000 minimum to get a space for an RV for a tiny home on wheels. And then if you get further out, like in like Lake County, there's some spots that are closer to like four or $500 a month. I mean, when you, when you scale that though, and you look at, you know, what, I mean, as you know, you know, the average cost of rent, even though it's gone down a little bit during the pandemic, I mean, that's so much less for your monthly nut than what you know what we pay in, in a normal situation a house an apartment whatever i mean that's substantially less so it's interesting and you know in in that sense you know i've i've heard when i've talked to certain people in my family about you know wanting to build a tiny house and put it there like but you won't build any equity and what about equity and you should buy a house cuz you build equity and your credit and blah 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 and you can take out a home they're giving me all these reasons which they're they're valid that's fine but it seems like you know the, the judgment you talked about, Adam, of of sort of this anti-poverty thing, extends to that of like, you know, what about your credit? And what about your equity? And what about you know building your future? And there, there's all of this kind of future fear built into what I've personally heard of why I ought not to do that and just be normal, as you said, and just get a regular house. And so 
Is that something you ever think about or you just kind of don't give a shit about when people bring up those concerns? No, totally. I think about it all the time. In fact, I realized that, especially after the the, the financial crisis in 2008, that I needed, and with my pedicab job, I wasn't I wasn't building a 401k or anything. Like, what am I going to do when I get older? And so I was lucky. I was lucky enough to have a dad that had a really high paying job and was interested in playing in real estate. And so we, around the same, well, before I got into tiny houses, actually, we invested together in a fourplex and an investment property. And so I was able to, through luck, to get into real estate, putting in a little bit of my savings and sweat equity as a property manager and the majority of my dad's money and his um, ability to get a mortgage. And so I also realized in that process that as a somebody who works in the service industry, who's primarily paid in cash, I'm not, I'm locked out of that, that game that you're referencing. I'm locked out of, I'm not able to get a mortgage. And, you know, that's, so that's another injustice or ridiculous aspect of our system which is a partly why people jump into tiny homes. So I'm actually now we're in the middle of working on getting my real estate license, ironically. But you reference another idea that, that pops up, which is, I mean, for me studying this and, and being involved in this for so many years, I realized that real estate is like one of the, the most solid ways to park your money, park your wealth and grow your wealth. And again, not everybody is, is able to play that game. I played a lot of poker while I was pedicabbing at one point, right right before the my tiny house start. And you realize when you play poker seriously that that the game changes depending on how much chips you have in front of you. So it's a much harder game when you are short stacked compared to if you happen to buy in for a big amount or you get a big windfall, all of a sudden every decision is a lot easier. So it, it's a very similar analogy to the way our economy works. And it's interesting to think about housing as not just as just a tool for shelter and not also an economic vehicle. And that I think is the problem that we're in. And if, if we can somehow divorce the two, remove the two, we would be better off because that's a big part of why these laws are prohibitive for people living affordably is because everybody's worried about their property values going down. And those people are the people that politicians care about and where policies are framed. Wow. I mean, the perspective of reflecting on the money involvement when it comes to how we live. I mean, I think this is one of, if not the main reason that younger generations are more and more interested in living minimally. It's like, it seems like a lot of people like millennials and Gen Z and, and perhaps even younger, like they're rethinking how they want to work, when they want to work, where they want to work. They want that freedom, as I mentioned earlier. They're confused and overwhelmed by things like real estate and credit cards. I mean, I, I noticed a lot of this on platforms like TikTok where I'll read through the comments and just see like a lot of people are just feeling overwhelmed and confused and at a, a big disadvantage financially. And it's very different than it seems like our parents' generations, you know, they seem to kind of have it all together. And, and perhaps many parents make the assumption that their children are going to buy a house, right? And raise a family and, and make all these, these financial decisions that they see as very savvy. But let's just say, you know, a millennial like us, if they're working in the service industry, which I think is very common, 
they're not getting those financial benefits. And so they're not set up in the same way that our parents who, many of which I just kind of perceive, I don't know if this is true statistically, but perceive them as having all these steady nine to five jobs with all these benefits. And money was very different then too. I mean, Jason has pointed this out, how the average income perhaps has gone down, but housing prices are going up or staying the same. So they're not really matching each other anymore. Which, Jason, I want to come back to you with that, if, if that is, in fact, what you were saying before, but just how, how money has shifted a lot. And of course, during COVID, we have whole new relationships with how we make money and how much money we're making and all of these different reflections as the government continues to change and how we're treated in the U.S. with money. And I think all of these things considered, it leads some a lot of people to say, screw it all. I'm getting a van. I'm living out of my car. And to your point earlier, Adam and and Jason as well, that that is a little bit more acceptable and also seen as cool. I see this so much on TikTok. We see this on Instagram. It's really big there too. Like people living out of their vans, people converting buses, people living out of cars, like all of that's actually become not just acceptable, but trendy. And this whole life of minimizing those expenses, living very minimally, and having that freedom to go wherever, whenever. But then what we don't often see in those type of posts is that it's not as always as easy and glamorous. <laughs> like to your point, Adam, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. And I experienced a little bit of it last year in 2020 when I drove across the country and camped in my car. It was really eye-opening because I had never experienced what it was like to A, really camp. But since I was staying in my car, I would often go to like RV parks or something. And like, it was so fascinating to me, really seeing what it was like to stay there amongst people who might be living there or staying there for months on end. I mean, I met all sorts of characters in those environments, right? It wasn't like a vacation or a quick experience like I was having. Like I was meeting all of these people that this was their life. And then I started to feel incredibly overwhelmed and it's still overwhelming, but a little less so for me to just trying to understand like, where can you park your car? Where can you sleep overnight? Where is safe? I mean, that's a whole nother conversation for me as a woman, uh, especially when I was doing part of that experience on my own. It was overwhelming just to try to figure out like, okay, how do I get my basic needs met? What is a good cost for this? Like, what are the rules? And then is it safe for me to even be doing this? And I find it fascinating that even though it's becoming more trendy and it's becoming more common, there's still a lot of vagueness, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, Adam, and I assume that part of the reason it's vague is it's like, is it because like you're learning something for the first time and thus just like anything else, you have to spend a lot of time studying it? Or is it kept purposefully vague because the country doesn't want people living out of their cars or vans? Is it something, is it a mix? Yeah, I think, well, you brought up a couple things, Whitney. I, I'm thinking about just the, we're in a, this interesting moment where there's, there are a lot of quote unquote middle class, comfortable people that are experiencing what 
poor people have experienced for a long time. And I think it's going to lead to some some good changes in the future. I mean, like I, I recently saw, I think, a, an Instagram post of like a really super cool hip couple and doing their van life thing. And they, you know, they had lots of family and resources to park their van, but they were like, whoa, like the cops just banged on our door because some studi neighbor just called us in and like WTF, you know, and that's, that's an experience that a lot of people deal with. And it's it, now it's, it's, it's seeping in brought to the broader culture, some of this stuff, which I think is, has, has positive repercussions, but yeah, I, yeah, the, the safety stuff is, is huge. The other thing, the other idea is, is, uh, it's not always so great to live in small spaces, right? And to not be able to stand up to deal with sometimes the the mold that can develop or the moisture. You're not as insulated from the outdoor environment, the elements, which can be cool initially, but after like three or four years, you know, it can kind of be a drag and it can affect your overall mental state. It can affect your performance, you know, out in the world and it can can start to drag on you. I mean, I, I've been doing it, I was doing it for about five years, but I also had the privilege to like go to Sundance every year and volunteer and stay in a really nice hotel. And I would travel a lot in the winter when it wasn't so fun. But, uh, I recently during, during the pandemic moved in with my girlfriend into a studio and she calls it the, the flush life, you know, <laughs> cause we're actually, we actually have flush toilets for once. And, uh, I was surprised at how, how it, it did affect my, my productivity, my mental state to just have a little bit of these creature comforts, I guess. So yeah, that's another aspect is it, you know, camping full time, which is, one way of, of thinking about it can affect you. I think the promise, though, of tiny homes is that you can get a, a well-insulated wood structure like the ones you see on HGTV, and eventually we can get them for for more like the price of a car rather than like $60,000, and eventually we can find a lot of these places to park affordably, and it can start to pencil out, and it can start to be a comfortable, more like flush life type experience. I love what you touched upon there, Adam, which is how living that way full time could really affect your mental health. Like that's such an, a great a great point because I I think that social media, of course, paints it as oh look at all the mental health benefits because of the freedom, because of the money I'm saving, because of all these great experiences. Now, again, my perspective mostly comes from that cross country trip that I did, which all in all was about maybe 20 days or less there and back total. But I did find that it was exhausting. I mean, I did not have the mental space or energy to do much else other than drive, figure out where I was going to stay the night and then make it through the night. I thought for sure, Adam, like, oh, I have all this time. I'm going to stop and, you know, for me, having an electric car, I'll stop and charge my car and I'll work. I could never work during that time. Just driving a lot is exhausting, right? So it's a little different than if you're like parked somewhere. But all of the variables that go into that experience, especially if you're going to a new place all the time, like you're constantly taken out of your comfort zone. You're constantly thrown into a new environment with new people. So I imagine for someone that just lives out of their car, the likelihood of them being able to stay in the same place for several nights is probably pretty slim. So at the very least, they have to go find another spot. You know, I'm sure over time you get used to where is safe and where you're allowed to be. But that can shift around too. And 
you know, just having that limited experience, I could absolutely imagine that it's really tough. And again, being a woman, but anybody who's experiencing fears around their safety, whether it's your gender or your race or your age or whatever other factor out there, like that's a whole nother level of mental energy because it's like the other thing I experienced, Adam, was I found it really hard to sleep because my brain was constantly like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I wasn't expecting that. And maybe that's because I wasn't used to it, but maybe that is just like the human, the way that our brains function is like, if we have experienced so much of life of, of safety and comfort, we don't know how unsafe it can feel and uncomfortable it can be to be in those situations where your survival is truly at stake. Because when you're in your car, it's, it can feel very vulnerable. Like you said, someone can come knock on your door and, and wake you up. You don't know who that person is and they're outside and you're in the small space. That's something I thought a lot about. And is it okay for me to be here? Is it safe for me to be here? Is somebody going to try to break into the car? Is someone going to try to to do something bad or vandalize? I mean, like just these constant thoughts that go through. And even when I would pick places to stay the night that felt really safe, there was still that like underlying thought for me. And so it actually gave me some perspective and a lot of compassion for people that are living that way. One thing I've been seeing on platforms like TikTok, going back to this point about it becoming more acceptable to the point where people are actually more comfortable sharing these things, there's it seems like less shame. So more and more I'm exposed to people sharing how they live out of their cars because They don't feel they have another option or they literally don't have another option. And one trend that kind of breaks my heart, but is also really smart from a survival is there's a a lot of people sharing how you can use your seatbelt to thread it through the armrest and then plug. So that way in the middle of the night, nobody can come and open up your car door. So like if you're listening versus uh, watching on YouTube, I'm showing on, on our video version of the podcast, but like the handle where you would put your hand through to open up the car, people are now putting their seatbelt through that handle loop and then buckling themselves or they're like putting it through the top. I mean, there's all of these ways people are rigging up their cars for more safety, which is really smart. But if you really step back, like you recognize they're doing that because they're staying in their car and they need to secure it. And it's like they they can't sleep if the, if they're thinking about someone breaking into their car all night long, right? Which again is something I experienced a lot. And it's like, wow, can you imagine living a whole year that way? Like what that would do to your mental health, how exhausting it would be just wondering where you're going to sleep. Is it safe? How are you going to use the bathroom? That was something else I experienced because I was traveling during COVID. I didn't want to use public bathrooms, but I had the option to. So I got creative. I was trying to protect my, my health and by not, you know, being in some of those situations, but like they were still there for me to your point, Adam, like that flesh life, (laughs) concept is really real because like just thinking about how are you going to sleep? How are you going to use the bathroom? How are you going to eat? How are you going to have access to water? That could take up your entire day. How do you have the energy or time even to do anything else? And so 
that's the drawback to things like this if you have the choice of whether or not to live that way. But if you don't have that choice, I think it's an important thing to point out and realize about what other people's lives are like. Totally. Yeah. I love that you brought sleep in. I was just, do you guys watch the the master classes? Do you guys do any of that? You know, those, it's a new platform, streaming platform. I watched the master class on this PhD scientist at a UC Berkeley that studies sleep for like the last 20 years. And sleep, what I learned, the big takeaway is that sleep is just like so massively important to our health. And it's not like it's a three-legged stool where it's like sleep, exercise, nutrition. It's like a two-legged stool of like exercise, nutrition, sitting on a platform of sleep. It's that important. And I, I love that you brought up compassion too, because that's definitely something I've learned in this journey is is I definitely, I think like most people just kind of tune out homeless folks and maybe there's judgment, maybe it's just they're totally irrelevant, but they're not me and I don't see myself in them. And once you, once you maybe if you travel a bit, like you did, Whitney, or you do something a little bit more adventurous, or not more adventurous, but something like long-term tiny home living like I've done, you start to realize like, oh, I could I could totally go crazy if like I just didn't get enough sleep for a couple days, you know, and I could be that person talking to myself out on the streets. And like you said, I mean, then it's not so easy to get into a a business and use the bathroom and you're just totally locked out of society. And it really does affect your your mental state. And I definitely experienced some of that, just feeling like I'm there's something wrong with me, you know, that that just I'm not normal. I think we all we all have those moments, but when you do something like this, it reinforces some of those those things. Absolutely. And one other thing that you're saying too that that I was reflecting on because part of my cross country trip I was with my friend and she was camping in her tent. I was camping in my car. And you recognize like, again, we we were avoiding situations like public bathrooms. Like We had the option to do them. But because we were avoiding them, we weren't really showering. I think we maybe showered twice on the whole trip, which was about 10 days, nine or 10 days. And that's not a huge period of time to go without showering. But still, if you're used to having access to a shower every day, it seems really extreme. And we brought limited amounts of clothes and we didn't have a laundry machine. So it's like we got to that place where our hair is messier and our body might smell more and our clothes are maybe is not as clean. And that perspective of just nine or 10 days that we had did put us in positions where it was a question in our head, like, how are people perceiving us? One of the things that we did during that trip was we brought a bunch of soups that all you had to do was add water to them, dehydrated instant soups. And we didn't have access to heat up water. So we would go into gas stations to get water. And that was like, again, one of those experiences, like you're pointing out, Adam, it's like, the gas stations are maybe the main place where people go to wash their bodies, to brush their teeth, to get food and, and water and that sort of thing. And like, I remember sometimes going in there and thinking like, are they going to think I'm a homeless person? Cause I'm coming in here to get water, you know, like, and that thought process too, of being afraid of people judging me for that, which is something that so many people are experiencing all the time. And I think your point about judging 
someone based on how they live or also just how they look. We get so fixated on that. And I think many of us are functioning with this this constant thought process of how do I look? How do I look to others all the time? And we have many of us the luxury of a shower and a laundry machine and you know, money to buy clothes and for women to buy products, to do their hair and makeup and men as well, their own products. And it's like, we take that stuff almost for granted, but it also consumes us so much. And, and I think one of the plus sides and one of the perspectives you could get out of traveling and camping for an extended period of time is you recognize how it's not really important on most levels, but at the same time, it's still a consideration because that's so much of how our society works. So it's like, Ugh, I have to brush my hair because I don't want to be perceived in this way that doesn't even really matter, but I'm still afraid of what other people think of us, you know? And to your point too, Adam, about how we will judge a homeless person without even recognizing, like, how did they get to that place where they look the way that they do and they live the way that they do and they they are exhibiting behavior in a certain way? Like, we we have no idea. And I remember really starting to experience homelessness for the first time when I when I was actually at Emerson College in Boston. I would walk across in Boston. We have a park, the Common, and my dormitory was like across the park from the classroom. So every day I would have to walk through the park. And it's a pretty nice park, very safe, but there were homeless people in there. And I remember I was like, that was my first major exposure to seeing these people and observing them. And like, as a woman, something that would cross through my head is, am I safe? Is this person going to attack me? And then of course, there's the mindset that many of us are in of like, should I give this person money? Or are they just going to use my money for drugs and all those kind of judgments that we put on them? And and the ignorance that we have overall of either not being exposed to them, but also not being very educated about who they are and what they're going through. And I think many of us have the privilege of trying to avoid homeless people. In Los Angeles, people have the privilege of complaining about, oh, the homeless, they're getting so out of hand. But that to me is like a pretty heartbreaking statement. Totally. I At one point, I started to go to a lot of meetings, neighborhood meetings and, and business meetings where they were talking about the, the homelessness problem, which has just accelerated in the last few years since then. But I, I remember noticing that that people would talk about homeless folks almost like, like rodents, like pests. It reminded me, yeah, of just like the same conversation I had a few moments earlier in Home Depot talking about, you know, the right technique to keep them out. But you also, I think you also realize when you get deep into this world that, uh, and maybe you saw this, Jason, if you could just give somebody like two weeks of just like a steady place to sleep and those, those basic needs that we all, we all deserve met, you know, they, they turn around and, and that's, that's, that's like hopeful for a society that we, we could get to, you know, if we could figure out how to get those basic needs met for everybody. It's also a really cool experience to live in a tiny home community. And I was going to kind of do my little spiel about our, what I call a, a hipster trailer park is what we used to call it. Cause most of the people that live there never really experienced homelessness like you see, you know, chronic homelessness, that sort of thing. And, you know, we had we had internet, we had ducks, we had chickens, we had bees, lots of space to grow food. And um it's it can be a really cool scene. 
you mentioned now that you've transitioned to living in a studio with uh, with your girlfriend. And so where are you at with it now? Since you're since you're living there, do you go back and visit the community? Do you go and chill with friends there? And, and also, I want to also hear about professionally what you're doing, because we had a chance to dig into Tiny Logic and see some of the services and the consulting you offer. And and I want to touch on that a little bit because I'm curious, you know, who are you working with? And when you do have someone approach you with a tiny house or even an ADU concept, what's that whole process like for you? And what was that learning curve? And we go back to career transitions and that being a part of this conversation. Are you the one drawing up the architecture plans? Do you have architecture students you work with? Like what, how do you run the company and how do you build houses for people? I want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit because I know nothing about it. And how the hell did you learn how to do this? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so so when I started, when we started the community, it was just I was the guy who I had previously managed a hostel when I was traveling in Central America after college, and you know, kind of a, a little bit of a spreadsheet nerd, and had a, a healthy bank account. So I I was the, the logical choice to kind of put my name on the lease, put my name on the bills and manage the finances sort of as like my gift to the community. And it was totally, you know, just split it five ways initially. And then over time, you know, I realized, well, I stepped into a lot of responsibility here. I, I could be sued from a couple different angles. Ghost Ship, I don't know if you guys remember the Ghost Ship fires, which was like a big where artist warehouse that erupted into a, an electrical fire and killed a lot of folks. And a lot of people contacted me thinking that I was a part of that community because they, they they knew that my situation was similar to that. It wasn't, I wasn't in ghost ship, but I realized like the person who was collecting the rent was on trial for like a year or so, you know, facing jail time. And that was, that was potentially going to be me. So all that to say that, uh, you know, I was getting treated like a landlord, but I wasn't getting the money of a landlord. So I, I wasn't trying to, to like, profit off of people, but I wanted to professional. I realized there was a need to professionalize what I was doing. I was essentially doing property management. So I created an LLC and focused on trying to figure out this space of being like a, a facilitator of a, of a housing cooperative and collecting a fee for that. There was another community similar to ours that had was mostly about Burning Man folks living out of buses and box trucks, and the founder of that was was about to, word was he, he was going to step away and it was going to potentially die, and so I came in to keep it alive and and serve as that admin through line for the group, and so that was sort of what I was what I was trying to to push, basically running an RV park that's not permitted. And in that process, I, I also began to work with contractors to build backyard units, often not permitted. And that's so I would sell for the contractor and then I wanted to learn, you know, how to build it. So then I would go in and, and help project manage and build. And so we had some weird adventures there. You know, we built one in San Bruno in a backyard. And then once we got to the stage of like finishing drywall, this inspector showed up and said, "Hey, this is uh, this is not legally in the right spot. It's okay because you're calling it a shed, but it's just got to be like 20 feet that way." So we ended up having to slice this tiny house into parts. We had to sl- literally slice the roof into three parts, disassemble the walls, and carry it like 20 feet and reassemble it. It was it was nuts, but that's kind of where 
this last year, I've so I've been kind of these, doing these two things to answer your question, Jason. I've been doing this property management piece focused on the niche of tiny home communities. And then on the other side, I've been basically trying to be a facilitator to builders, being a matcher. Because I have a, a lot of sales background. And to tie in what you're saying about the career transition, I think with all of this, I've really applied my journalism skills to figuring out the laws. Like in, in New York, I used to go to community board meetings and cover them. And so I knew the dynamics, the drama of a community board framework. And 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 I applied a lot of that knowledge to trying to understand what was going on in Oakland. And just just generally, like figuring out how to run a permit is definitely a research experience every time. It's always different. And it's a lot of calling people and hounding people. And so a lot of the journalism stuff is really helpful for permitting, but also sales and just conveying these complex ideas to potential customers. So right now, this last year, I the eight, there was a big law that was passed in 2020 to make ADUs, accessory dwelling units or backyard units, a lot more possible. Before that, there was a lot of these poison pills, these you know, you can do an ADU, but it's got to be, it's got to have like three parking spaces associated with it. And you can't build it if you have, you know, square footage that's 800 square feet and all this stuff. So it effectively made it impossible to build an ADU in almost everywhere. This law made it so that there's just a very bare minimum of standards to build an ADU. And so many, so many more properties are now able to do it. So there's this big boon happening right now. All these companies are getting into the ADU space. I jumped in with a startup and was was serving as their sales rep and, and permitter where they were converting shipping containers into prefabricated ADUs. And now I have branched out into basically there's there's what I've realized is that there is there's a ton of builders. They all want to do their one thing and they don't always match what a property needs. So for instance, a a prefabricated unit has to get into a backyard and that means either by a crane or driving it into the backyard. Not every property can do that. If you have power lines over your street, a crane can't go over. So and some properties have unique spaces that that need more of a custom build and some builders are not necessarily able to take on your build they might they might fit your your type of yard but they might be booked out for the next year so there's a need for someone to be a matchmaker someone with knowledge of the unique challenges of installing an ADU and knowledge of the builders and where they're at and and making a match. So that's kind of what I what I've been doing. I'm offering free consultations if people want to contact me and I get a sense of their yard, their property, their what their mission is for the ADU and then I go and and look for a builder that'll fit that that bill. Fascinating. I'm curious Jason if all of this conversation is is reigniting your interest in living in a tiny home. <laughs> now that you know a little bit more about how it all works. Well, the issue that I have now is I have a lot of animals. And so I would need like a double stacked, you know, I would need like a tiny house, like a two tier, which I've seen, you know, I still am kind of obsessed with looking at YouTube videos and articles. And over the years, I've seen it evolve, you know, Adam, from from sort of these boho, hippie, 
sort of, you know, aged wood, you know, living up in Northern California, not really my aesthetic per se. Right. But, but kind of like ramshackle, very like rustic, you know, and then now everyone's doing these, you know, super modern, tiny houses that, you know, they, they feature them in dwell and architectural digest. It's like, wow, a tiny house is an architectural digest, but I'm, I'm seeing people sort of provide an example of still affordably creating something that has maybe like you said, more creature comforts. It's, it's, you know, more advanced plumbing systems and, and different kind of, you know, black water toilets that are a little more user friendly. You know, people aren't necessarily like pooping in a bucket like they used to. Cause so, you know, in Costa Rica, when I was there years ago, you know, some of the tiny houses I saw there from the expats, it was like, Oh, you poop in a bucket and you just take it. Okay. That that's a choice. I would prefer not to poop in a bucket. So my point is I'm seeing more advanced, interesting designs in, in tiny houses that I say, oh, you know what? I, I could live in that because I have five animals. Five animals and van life are not necessarily compatible. You know, I'd have to have like, oh, then this is, you know, the litter boxes go in the back half. And anyway, I want to go back to kind of accessibility and affordability for one second because... Can you just tell me your five animals? I'm super curious. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. I... I <laughs> I was hoping, Jason, you'd like list off like I have a mini horse, I have an iguana, I have a capybara, I have a duck. <laughs> it's not even that interesting, but they are my companions. And and by God, through through the last, you know, 14 months, whatever of COVID, they've been a godsend. So I have four cats, Adam. I have Claudia and Lynx, Figaro and Julius. And then the newest member is a tiny French bulldog named Bella. So that's my five. So in essence, if I if I kind of bundle them all together, they don't take up that much space. But, you know, in a van or a tiny house, I want them to feel they have autonomy and, and not too cramped. You know, they they're used to living in, in a house, you know, and I'm and I'm used to living in a house. So it's another consideration of like, you know, OK, I've got my you know, what do I keep? What books do I keep? What clothes do I keep? Do I keep my guitar? Where does the guitar go? Where do I set up? I've actually thought through in my head of like how would I restructure my life to live in a tiny house? It's an interesting challenge. But, you know, to go back real quick to the the affordability, accessibility side of this thing, I think it's going to be interesting to see as we see a, a pretty massive attrition in places like New York, LA, and the Bay Area specifically, of how many middle-class people have moved in the last year. Because you know, one thing that I've been looking at is, is you know, buying property in LA, but I, I'm not able to because the median house price now in LA is over $700,000 for the first time in history. And in Orange County, it's 800000 That's the median price, right? So I've been talking to friends who have been going in and trying to buy a house. You know, they've got good credit, they've got a stable job, et cetera. And they're saying, we literally cannot buy anything because there are cash buyers coming in and dropping $100,000 over asking. And so middle-class people with good jobs, blah, 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 benefits, the whole thing, can't even buy a house here because they're so priced out of the market. So it's interesting to me to see you bring up ADUs because in LA, the the relaxation of that law here in LA was, was pitched as, we need more affordable housing in LA. There's not enough affordable housing. But I'm curious if this is actually a thing that's delivering on that idea wherein a private homeowner or landowner is building an ADU, A, because they probably want to make more money. They want another passive stream of income. 
But what are they actually renting these ADUs for? Is it actually affordable or is it like, yeah, we're going to put up an ADU in Oakland as an example, and we're going to charge, you know, $2,000 a month for the ADU. That's not really, that's not really an affordable option. So I guess my whole point in this is, you know, in a place like LA, the Bay Area, New York City, it would seem that allowing ADUs and tiny houses to have more freedom could be a potential solution to offering more affordable housing options. But I don't know if the reality is necessarily panning out that way. What are you seeing, Adam, when you help people with ADUs, when you help people with these tiny house projects, is it actually an affordable option or is that sort of a pie in the sky dream that politicians want to say, yay, this will be great, but it doesn't actually work? No, you're you're spot on. Yeah. I'd say the majority of people that come to me and want to build an ADU, they in the short term want to have an office space or a flex, you know, guest room for grandma because they have a new baby or their college kid that's that's isn't able to go to school right now and needs is living back at home with them. And then in the long term, they want to be able to rent it out. And in fact, there was there's a company that I work with called Rent the Backyard. Their whole business model was around the fact that that you can get high rents in this market for your ADU. So they initially they were they would finance the build, be like a partner with you on it, split the rents with you. And then over time, you would buy them out. And it was all based on the idea that you would be able to get high rents for this backyard unit. So you're totally right. It's not, it's either, I mean, at best, it's extra housing units that are going to support family that maybe wouldn't be out in the in the rental market. And so maybe that would bring the rents down, maybe. But yeah, you're right. I think for me, what I've realized in doing the numbers for this stuff is that the main cost line is the land. And the land is also like you referenced with these these crazy prices, it's not really connected to reality in a lot of senses. It's the it's the magic part of the market, I guess. So one thing that one idea that's that I've been playing with, and this kind of goes back to the the homelessness approach, but maybe we can find a way to make it more for everyone so so people don't feel like they're they're in that 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 class category is just to to use a piece of the commons. So I'm sure this is happening in LA. I know it is actually. And it's definitely happening in the Bay. There's a ton of people that are just there. They move into their RV and they just set up shop on the side of the road. And so people are already figuring it out. And, and in some, in a lot of cases, it's really disorganized and it's a, it's a problem. In some situations though, people are keeping it clean. What I think would be cool is to come up with Actually, I think LA did a version of this where they had like a designated green streets, I thought I heard, where it was in these streets, you're allowed to park and live 24-7 in your home on wheels. What I think would be cool is, is like a parking pass that people could get that basically says to a cop or a neighbor, this person and this rig has been vetted. Maybe they've paid a little bit to be vetted. They have this parking pass. The cops won't bother them. The neighbors will will feel like, okay, this isn't a heroin addict who's gonna, you know, leave a cow pie on my sidewalk. And like a an add-on to this idea would be to basically marry parklets with tiny homes. So I'm 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 talking with a a parklet architect right now about a pilot to to basically create a, a parklet with the permitting process of a parklet, but just slide a tiny house in there and figure out how to connect it to utilities or set up a, a system of, of trucks that regularly come and, and pump 
out black water and pump in fresh water and do a battery swap. But just to play with the idea of of taking up, it's it's not much, you know, it's maybe two or three parking spaces, maybe 300 square feet, you know, and that will, I think, make things so much cheaper and more affordable. If you pair that with the ability to acquire a tiny home on wheels affordably. Yeah. One, one quick add on to that is just like, we think about our personal space, right? Like no matter where I am in the world, like there is a certain sphere around me that's like my space, right? Like you can't invade my space, even if I'm like in your house and it would be cool to apply that to your house. So like, you know, that's like 300 square feet. So long as I'm like not in the middle of a freeway and I'm not blocking these other, you know, pathways, like I'm allowed to be there as long as I'm, you know, not a problem. That would be an interesting law maybe to to push for. I love that, Adam. And all of this is just mainly evoking more desire to be more educated about the homeless in general. Like that's something that I reflect a lot on and, and feel mainly ignorant on. And as you were talking about the green streets, as you were saying, I looked it up and, um, in LA, there's there's a few things. I, I found safe parking streets that was updated three years ago. So that might be what you're referencing. And I've noticed in LA, there are certain areas where I'll kind of take note of what the homeless situation is like. And then I'm fascinated by how it changes. So for example, in Hollywood, where I live, there are lots of tents around and there'll kind of be some areas where you'll see a lot of people living out of tents. And then I've noticed sometimes they disappear. Sometimes I've seen the cops coming by and clearing them out, but then they'll come back and I'm, I'm, I'm just like kind of intrigued by what the rules are and like why that happens. And I've also noticed like it kind of shifts around to different parts of the neighborhood. And there's one in particular I drove by just a couple of days ago that I hadn't been down for a bit and there were a combination of tons of tents, probably in this two block area. I would estimate at least 20 tents, but there's stuff all over the place. And then there were a lot of RVs parked over there. And I was, I was reflecting like, hmm, I wonder if those, like the, they must all be part of this little community that they've built. Right. And it's fascinating to drive through it because I suppose as long as I don't feel like threatened safety wise, like as long as I feel like I can drive through that area because I need, you know, I need to, or I want to like that, that feels okay. Aesthetically though, it's interesting because I think a lot of people just don't like the way it looks. Right. But if you really examine it and recognize that every human being deserves to live and have their space, as you're saying, Adam, I think that's a really important thing to remind ourselves as. And people don't live the same way, even even in apartments. Like we can be judgmental about like what we consider messy or or ugly or decorations we like or not. So if you really just try not to judge the homeless and say like this is another human being deserving of how they of living the way that they want to live. And sure, like to your point, Adam, like, do we want waste in the street? Do we want, you know, used needles or drugs or whatever else like that, that threatens that, that like triggers us to feel less safe. And certainly there are ideas around, am I safe to walk through these areas, you know? But then I start to examine that too. And I think like, is it 
really that it's not safe? Or is it that we've been convinced it's not safe as a way of, what's the word, like being judgmental of these people? Like, is is that some some misconception we have in our head that homeless people equal drug users, homeless people equal unsafe people, homeless people equal mentally ill? Because that's not always the case. And I think in a way, perhaps we've been brainwashed to think those things as a way of controlling and getting us to be judgmental and, you know, kind of leveraging people that live in those areas to say, oh, we can't have someone sleeping in their car on my street. We can't have someone putting up a tent on my street. You know, it's like that. It also comes back to like that territorial mindset. And I suppose the more I learn about this, the more I step back and really wonder, like, where is the truth here? And then I need to be mindful that everyone deserves to have rights. I think that's what it really comes down to. Like each person, to your point, Adam, has basic human rights so that they can survive. And we also have to step back and recognize our our privilege of simply having the financial resources to live in a certain way that not everybody else has. Yeah, totally. And yeah, you're bringing up two two I think important things to note in that discussion is like a they're part of the trash problem and the the eyesore aspect of of a lot of encampments is is because there is no outlet for for trash there's often no outlet for bathrooms i mean in in a lot of cases you hear about there are trash cans but they've been locked by the city or there are bathrooms at this park but they have locked them because they don't want to encourage someone to be there and so trash piles up and so there's if we have we we provide water at public parks and bathroom at public parks for everybody and if we could figure out how to provide trash service for everyone and bathroom access for everyone i think that would be go a long way to this this eyesore problem which isn't cool the other thing though is is that i noticed when doing my journey in tiny housing and looking across outside of the fence at folks who were camped out on the street and talking to them, you realize that there is like this, this uh, spectrum based on how the spectrum of, of, I guess, aesthetic pleasingness based on how much, how long you feel like you're able to be in, in that space. So, a homeowner on the on the one end of the spectrum, they're there. They're not going anywhere. They can throw twenty grand or whatever. They can spend a couple hundred dollars making their space nice. It's going to stay there. It's going to be worth it. It doesn't make sense if you're if you're camped out on the other side of the spectrum on the street and you know you you may only be there for maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month. You know you're going to just cobble together what you find. You're not going to put too much money or effort into it. And then I think where we were was in the middle of that spectrum because we were behind a fence. We were leasing a space, but we could, we realized we could, you know, zoning officials could crack down on us and we could maybe have like a month or two months to leave three months to leave. So, you know, we're going to invest in some stuff, make it look cool, but we're not going to throw all of our money into it. There's going to be some, some aspects that are a little, you know, recycled and maybe someone might say janky. So I think that's w- worth noting. I'm curious now that you're in a traditional studio, Adam, what do you miss about tiny house living? What do you miss about it? 
Yeah, that's a good one. You know, being inside all the time, insulated from the the outdoor elements, is it can have negative effects. I find my, that I need to get outside. I have a I have a tradition every day now where I go out and have my tea out. I'm right by the lake. This it's like it's kind of like Central Park or whatever. It's a big lake, but it's a big park as well. And so I go out and have my tea at the lake every day and listen to the New York Times podcast. And that's that's an important ritual. And if and even if it's raining, like the other day it was raining here, I still had to go out and just walk around under the trees for for like 30 minutes just to get that air. And fresh air and you know it, living in a tiny home community what's cool is you are really involved in the outdoor space a lot of your activities are in the outdoor space when i lived at the community that i still manage i mean yeah it, i i took it for granted the the amount of i would just i would go out you know just constantly and what's cool also is this the social aspect of it which has really been a blessing during the pandemic uh, because I was always able to go to the tiny house community. It's, it's oriented like a big, like a horseshoe. So there's a big courtyard in the center and it's, it's a very safe place to socialize with folks and we have a fire pit. And so you can, you know, sit by the fire and those, those aspects you can't really always get in a city normie lifestyle. I really, you know, in my travels, want to come up and, and visit and see it. That's something I, w- I would love to plan, Adam, and, and meet you in person because I feel like I personally have so many questions to dig into. And, may, you know, maybe that's just an opportunity for me at some point to book a consultation with you if I decide to move forward, honestly. And speaking of which, your company is called Tiny Logic. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so you being that's you an being, awesome name. Yeah, I was going to say it, it, it sounds it sounds very official. And like, there's a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of organization involved, which I like because Whitney, Whitney is the spreadsheet queen. Anyone who knows Whitney, that's why when you brought up spreadsheets earlier, Adam, I was like, oh, you two are friends. You, yeah, you got you both guys both have the superhero spreadsheet powers. So, with Tiny Logic, if someone wants to get in touch with you, Adam, you obviously offer services where you go and you assess their property, you see if it's a good fit. And then you, so I understand correctly, you match them with a builder or a contractor to actually execute the project. So you're like a liaison. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. What I've found is that that's what most people want is they want to get into contract with a builder. And so, yeah, I'm making that commitment to folks if they, if they're willing to pay me to come spend some time out and give them a consultation at their property. I will stick with them until we, we find a contract for them. Yeah. And then the pr- the way that I would make money is a little bit on coming out for that consultation, but a commission if possible from the builder, but it doesn't always work that way. The main goal, kind of like a real estate agent is how I'm framing it, is to be in the the homeowner's corner, in the buyer's corner, trying to find them the best deal. Wow, that that's super fascinating. You also have your podcast that I last we spoke you weren't updating it, but you still have the episodes. I'm curious like what is your plan with that as podcasters? We love seeing other podcasters explore important topics and yours is called We Are Homeless, right? And I love the description of it, by the way, because you say the objective is to make homelessness a historical concept which I think is such a powerful mission statement. Are you planning on on updating it? Last I checked, you hadn't. So where do you stand on the podcast? 
Yeah, no, thanks for asking. I actually, I updated the podcast title to just be Tiny Logic. And so if you search Tiny Logic, there's, and there's a, a new season out. So I'm, I'm, I've been updating uh, four weeks running now, which feels good to get in that habit. And yeah, we, I would love, love for your listeners to come give it a listen. Some of the first episodes in season two, we cover some of my initial inspirations for getting into tiny housing and my journey. And then it's basically formatted kind of like this long form conversations. And really it's kind of like my audio notes for the work that that Tiny Logic does. So it's really just a learning experience for me. And sometimes I try to talk to folks who are directly experiencing homelessness. Sometimes I try to talk to more policy thinkers or service workers. And then there's just a lot of interesting characters that that I've come across that that have done tiny house journeys and have a lot of interesting perspectives to share. Yeah. So it's called Tiny Logic. And I'd love if you guys would come check it out. Absolutely. Yeah, Adam, it's just been such a wealth of information today and and so many cross sections of socioeconomics and class and privilege and safety and and you know deconstructing I suppose these normal patterns that you know our culture says we ought to do and there's so many layers to this conversation and and you know one thing for me that I reflect on a lot in this this homelessness conversation too is you know, my father at the end of his life, the past five years of his life was homeless here in Los Angeles. And so when we talk about this concept of acknowledging the inherent humanity and the inherent, I believe, basic human right for safety, shelter, protection, nourishment, it hits deeply and closely to home for me, having had a, a homeless parent. And I certainly have a lens that is 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 different having had that experience with my father of looking at this incredibly complex issue with so many of the variables we discussed today and also being like, all right, we may not know what the solution is, but if we keep discussing this and trying to change zoning laws and change the classism and the sexism and the racism and, and so many of the factors that are interwoven in this. Um, at times, I can feel overwhelmed by it all because it's like, what the fuck do we do? But I do believe that the the baseline of this is acknowledging the inherent value in humanity in each person and saying, how can this person be protected and housed and taken care of? And to me, I think if more human beings from the politicians to the policymakers to us on this podcast discuss how to acknowledge and support the inherent humanity in one another, I think that's the jump off point. And until we start to do that and not look at them, as you said, as rodents or trash or a problem to be dealt with, but these are human beings with feelings and emotions and complexities and rights. Again, from my own personal experience with, with my father, I, I feel deeply passionate about this. So with that being said, Adam, I'm sure there's going to be more conversations with you in the future for a variety of reasons. And for you, dear listener, if you have resonated with with Adam's perspective and you want to know more about what he does with Tiny Logic, we will link to his website, his podcast, all of the resources for Adam Garrett Clark in our show notes, which is wellevator.com. You can go there. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section and all the links to Adam's work and how to find him will be in the show notes there for you and how you can contact him if you want to get a consultation with Tiny Logic and and also just pick this man's beautiful brain because he clearly has one. So your wealth of knowledge and, and love and compassion, Adam, and 
I'm just really, really grateful to have met you through Whitney and feel just a real kinship with you. So thank you for being and sharing on the podcast today. It's been wonderful. Hey, thank you. And yeah, I think there's a lot of different conversations we could have. So I look forward to continuing the conversation with you guys. This has been great. Thanks so much, Adam. It's it's great to be reconnected to you as well. It's a great way to catch up in, in such an in-depth way. And I just want to acknowledge you also for for stepping up your podcast game again, because, uh, you know, when we originally talked, you, you weren't, you weren't sure where it was going to go. And, and I'm just, I feel proud of you knowing that you're getting the word out about such an important subject matter. And, and as podcasters, we know that it is always easy to stay on track with posting, but when you have such a, an important subject matter like this, it goes beyond us. So thank you. And I hope the listener goes and checks it out and helps spread the word. We certainly will. And just grateful for all that you do, Adam. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 